This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen on the web at blackmountainzen.org. Our public offerings are made possible by the kind donations from people like you. This evening my talk is going to consist of three stories. Let me say by way of preface that um, it often occurs to me, or maybe sometimes occurs to me, that there are significant moments in our life, you know, and that the, uh, we uh, treasure them, we, they, they carry a value, a guidance, a reference for us. Um, sometimes I'm struck by how enduring uh, those moments are for us um, and the teachings that they offer us. Um, so here's the first story. Um, as I was I listened to the NPR news today at about 4.30 and they had a, um, a piece from uh, Fallujah. The reporter was with uh, Marine Corps as they were moving through the streets going house to house and they were talking to a young, I think he was a corporal, it sounded like he was about 21 or 22. And he said, um, I love my girlfriend and I love my family and my friends, but these guys, talking about the guys in his corps, he said, the way I feel about these guys goes way beyond that. Uh, what we've been through um, is something special, you know. We laugh together, we cry together, uh, we experience life and death together. Um, and I thought um, of the irony, you know, of something so uh, ferocious and violent. could have within it for the participants, for some of the participants, uh, some expression of intimacy, you know, some opportunity to open completely to another human. And it reminded me of, you know, of hearing veterans of different wars, you know, get together after 50 years, you know, and and still feel some strong affinity. Yeah. So it, it made me think, well, what, what is it? You know, what, what is it to feel a strong affinity, to feel a strong connection, to feel that in this moment, in this relationship, I can unreservedly engage? 
Does the moment demand it or do we offer it up? So here's the second story. Uh, it's part of the, the classic story of Shakyamuni Buddha's awakening. Which is a very interesting story, you know, whether you want to take it literally as completely factual or whether you want to just take it as a myth. You know, if, if you think that it was an oral tradition for somewhere around 400 years, which means that these particulars were significant enough to the people who heard them that they repeated them to each other from generation to generation for 400 years. So here's the story. Um, when Shakyamuni awakened, um, he, he felt a particular sensibility. Maybe in the more technical terms of Buddhism we would call it sukha, a sense of mental and physical ease and well-being, of contentment, of settledness. And that moment reminded him of another moment. It reminded him of a moment when he was eight years old. And he was sitting underneath a, a flowering tree watching his father uh, make the ceremonial first plow of the season off in the field. And what linked those two moments was this feeling of sukha, this sense of ease, contentment, physical and mental. In one of the early sutras, it says that these moments are strung together like pearls on a string. These, these moments were the usual frustration and struggles and confusions drop away. And something vibrant expresses itself. It says in the sutra that these moments connect to each other across space and time like pearls on a string. And right there in the myth of Shakyamuni, you know, there it is. This eight-year-old boy and, and this grown adult man after seven years of arduous practice experiences something that he experienced maybe without any effort when he was eight years old. So what does it tell us about uh, awakening? What does it tell us about entering completely into the moment? Okay, and so here's a story from my own life. Um, I was walking uh, along a river 
I think the river was called the Olamjamba, walking along a dirt path. And I was carrying uh, a little girl. The little girl was about four years old, a little small for her age. And she was fast asleep. And, you know, when I started to carry her, it didn't seem such a physical challenge, you know. But as soon as I continued to carry her, and carry her, and carry her, um, I really felt her weight. <laughs> and all the time, she was asleep. Every now and then, she'd... Uh, half wake up and look at me with these drowsy eyes and then flop back into my body. <laughs> and as I carried her, you know, I just, it felt like um, She had given her body over to me. And as I carried her, I watched these other children that were with us. There was about ten of them. Their ages ranging from five to fourteen. And uh, we were all walking along beside this river. We had come from a place called uh, Casa de Moragro, which means House of Miracles. And um, walking beside me was another adult and she had started this House of Miracles and we had decided to walk to a nearby town uh, because we lived out, it was out in the country um, and there was no way to get to the town you know and I was saying to the person's name was Kia and I was saying to Kia well what shall we do shall we get a taxi shall we get a bus and she said no there is no taxi there is no bus we'll walk you know it hadn't occurred to me, you know, that we would, with five and six and four-year-old children, we would walk two miles. And I remember um, thinking, this is going to be something, you know. This is, this is not like, we'll be there in five or ten minutes, you know. This is going to take a long time. You know, we're going to be walking. And I remember feeling... give over to the walk because it's going to be itself. You know? This is what it is to practice. You know, It's like we give over to it. It's not something we do and then quickly it'll be over and then our life goes on afterwards. 
you know, it's sometimes when we sit, you know, we might think, oh, well, this is a half-hour sitting or a 45-minute sitting or an all-day sitting or a 10-day sitting or a 30-day sitting. And somehow we've got some relationship about its temporality in the way in which, you know, we're sort of holding something back. Really, practice is just saying to us, you know, give over. Let this go on forever. Let this go beyond time. Just do it as if it's your whole life. Just do it as if it doesn't really matter if it ends or when it ends. It's itself, you know walking from the house of miracles to the nearby time is endless and timeless. This is what makes a moment a moment. When we qualify it, when we limit it, when we say it has a beginning and an end, then somehow or another even though it deeply makes sense to us to do that, because we want to get somewhere, we want to do something, we want to have something. Um, There's a way in which we're denying ourselves something. So it took a long time to walk to this small town. And and it was very interesting because to watch the children, because they're children, you know. And children have this capacity to just entertain themselves as they go, you know. It didn't really matter to them. They like look at the river, they'd stop, they'd find things to poke at and lift up and throw and they'd play with each other and uh, and all the time this little girl in my arms was fast asleep. And this little girl had spent the first two years of her life in a box. For some reason, the people who were taking care of her kept her in a box. And they didn't talk to her, and they didn't hold her. Um, They didn't bathe her very much either. Um, but they did give her enough food to stay alive. And so when Kia found her and adopted her, when she found her, she brought the doctor and the doctor examined her and he said, well, you could take her, but she's not going to live. She's too distressed, 
you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, that, you know, those, that nurturance that supports life, that contact, that intimacy, that that young marine um, treasured even in some brutal, violent situation. This child had been denied it. And the doctor thought, she can't live. She won't live. But uh, Kia took her anyway, and even though when she started her house, she thought, well, I can take six children. And at this point, she had 24. (laughs) Um, Somehow, she thought, what else can I do? This uh, child needs to be cared for, uh, even if she's not going to live. What does it matter? So there's a way in which life is asking us to meet it. You know, there's a, there's a way in which life is asking us to respond to what it presents. Uh, Not because we can calculate uh, the process or the strategy for success, but just something more visceral, something more to do with our shared humanity. So Kia took this little girl and bathed her, gave her herbs to get rid of all the parasites and intestinal uh, worms and things like that. She said never had she seen such big intestinal worms. And the little girl didn't die. I mean, she had all the symptoms of autism because nobody had ever spoken to her. So at two years old, she hadn't developed the capacity to hear and distinguish sound. She hadn't developed the capacity to mimic language. She hadn't created the neural networks that enable emotionality. So Kia set up 24-hour-a-day care. That someone would be with her 24 hours a day. Someone would hold her, communicate with her, nurture her.
So in some ways, and maybe in ways that we'll never know, the request of practice to touch, to make contact to our own life. Maybe we'll never know the way in which it nurtures us. Maybe we'll never know the way in which it brings us to life and sustains our life. You know, in a strange way, it makes sense to us to cut off, to separate, to ignore. The practice of awareness, the practice of awakening is asking us to not ignore. And the profundity of that, as I say, maybe we'll never really get it. Maybe that's what it is to be Buddha. Is to really get that the practice of awakeness gives a human life a precious nurturance that it deeply craves. That it's that each human life searches for substitutes. If only I could get that, if only I could have that, if only I could avoid that. Maybe this is the quality of a Buddha. A Buddha really gets it. Hmm. So for 24 hours a day, constant contact. And initially, this little girl, um, they say one, one of the characteristics of an autistic baby is when you hold it, when you take it in your arms, when you take a normal baby in your arms, it folds into your body, it folds into your arms, it melts into you. When you take an autistic baby, it arches its back, it pulls away, it tightens, it doesn't suffer. Maybe when we've lost our deep knowledge of being connected to all being, when we start to re-experience it, we have some hesitation or some resistance. You know, we meditate just to be completely present with everything and something in us doesn't like it. Can't I just stay in the cocoon of my own thoughts and feelings and imaginings? Something in us thinks that that's 
the precious nurturance that truly supports our life. And when the request of awareness comes along and says, open to everything, we have some hesitation, some ambivalence. We're not quite sure this is going to be okay. Well, I'd be okay if I opened to everything. No. Because <laughs> when you open to everything, you're part of everything and you're involved in everything. You know, you're involved in its glories and in its disasters. You know, you're involved in its delights and its confusions. Is it okay to be part of a Marine Corps in Fallujah? I don't think so. <laughs> it sounded awful. So maybe we have some ambivalence with the request to practice. Maybe we need to explore intimately this paradox. Can I withdraw into the cocoon of self? Will I provide the nurturance and the security and the clarity that my life craves? Or can I allow this intimate engagement with all being? Not knowing exactly what that's going to be or produce or create. And how will it be? Will I have to do it for a five-day sashin or a five-day retreat and then everything will be fine? Hmm. Maybe it's more like a journey, you just start it and keep going. Maybe it's more like just walking to the nearest time with five-year-olds. who keep teaching you. The little boys stop and they throw stones in the, in the river and the little girls played around. So from two years old to four years old, this little girl had constant contact. I was just starting to be able to look other people in the eye. couldn't speak, but she could um, make the facial gestures that communicated feeling. And she could cry. She couldn't smile, but she could um, express some ease. I was very surprised when she let me carry her. And I was very surprised 
and she melted into my body and fell asleep. Maybe sometimes in our practice we struggle and struggle and struggle to get it right, to do it the way it's supposed to be done, to have it happen on our own terms. And then at some point, we go beyond our struggling. You know, this is the intriguing thing about the myth of Shakyamuni. You know, he had his great yogic accomplishments, but he also had his great struggles. In fact, he struggled to a point where he didn't have the energy to struggle. So for each of us to look at our lives and think, where's my version of that? What is it that I keep pushing against, or keep grasping for, or keep struggling with? You know, what part of myself do I keep trying to make something other than what it is? What way do I struggle with my past and just can't accept it was just exactly what it was. What parts come up that I keep wanting to have happen again? What parts come up that I keep wanting to change into some better story? What is it to just let it be what it is? What is it to just sit down under a flowering tree. You know, in the story of Buddha, you know, there's, there's the descriptions, a beautiful spring day, warm with pleasant breeze, sitting under a flowering tree, removed from the event, but seeing it clearly, falling into an ease, just naturally, simply. Did the moments of our life have to be dramatic, intense, a great battle against some of the force of evil? Can they be just ease and simple? The sweetness of an everyday occurrence. I walked along with these children and we walked to a nearby town. Small town, had about four or five streets. Um, And they were having the festival, the Santa Rosa. And we went into the town and we walked to the market square, the central square. And there were hundreds of people. And up front, 
it was a big dance, a big um, stage. And they had all these dancers. And the people were drinking lots of corn liquor. I was assured that this was a significant and necessary part of celebrating the festival of Santa Rosa. And the children, you know, because the, the children lived out in the country, um, they had all become orphans. And then they come to this, in, and almost all of them had come through very difficult circumstances. Maybe this little girl's was the most ferocious, the most deprived, but uh, whatever you can imagine, these children experienced it. And they had come to this house of miracles and their lives were transformed. I was talking to the person who runs it, uh, who's given her life to it, Kia, and, I, and she said, I said, what inspires you to do this? And she said, well, I don't have any religious beliefs. Um, in a way, nothing inspires me to do it other than the value of kindness. I really think that to live by kindness is the most abundant way to live. So maybe for each of us in our life's journey, is this request to discover the house of miracles, to discover the place, the occasion, the moment, the practice, the relationship that enables some shift, you know, some shift that moves us from contracting that removes us from fear, that removes us from uncertainty and grasping, and turns us towards something more abundant. You know, maybe our practice asks of us to discover what is that alchemy, you know, in my life. You know, what are the ingredients that will enable the shift? And sitting, you know, traditionally in our practice, sitting, sitting is like 
creating the crucible that we put these ingredients in. But there's a way in which we're being asked to discover the awesome request that sitting is initiating. To be completely unreservedly in the moment. To know that the interconnectedness of life is just so much more powerful than the ideas we have about it. So much more powerful than the likes and dislikes we have about it. That our own force, our own life force, is more powerful than the likes and dislikes we have about it. Or even the good intentions we have about it. You know, we sit down and we think, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to pay attention and I'm going to be a a good Buddhist practitioner and, you know, be peaceful and mindful and aware. And then our life force just spills forth. I mean, who could sit, which one of us could sit for 30 minutes and at the end of it say, that was exactly what I thought was going to happen, you know? I had all the thoughts that I planned. and (laughs) Our life force, you know, keeps coming forth with a genius, with an intensity, you know, So to pause, to pause deeply, to pause so deeply that we have this visceral feeling, okay, this is it, and this is it is going to go on for the rest of this human existence. This is what it is to sit down and meditate. This is it. Everything I am is right in this moment. And it's beyond what I think it is, and it's beyond what I want it to be, and it's beyond what I don't want it to be. This is awareness practice. So we went from the House of Miracles along the river to the festival of Santa Rosa. And then we stood and watched the spectacle. People drinking lots of liquor, doing lots of dancing. A 
it's great, you know, sometimes you just look and you think, don't ask me what this is all about. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot going on, but <laughs> it just can't be contained. What exactly are those Marines doing in Fallujah? You know, what is right and what is wrong? You know, what is being accomplished? Um, will we ever know? And yet right there in the middle, this young marine finds some um, some precious moment. How amazing that that's what he wanted to communicate. The intimacy of connectedness. So as I carried that little girl, and she got heavier and heavier, my heart got lighter and lighter because I was inspired by the notion that um, maybe she was going to survive. Maybe she was going to beat all the odds and all the predictions. and be able to do something as precious as look people in the eye and say hello and smile. moments of our life that give our life meaning, that, that drop us down a couple of notches and remind us what's really important. And maybe it's more about feeling than ideas. Maybe, maybe not. Sometimes it seems to me like it is. Something goes beyond the overlay of words and ideas that we put on it. I would say to you that our practice is to enable these moments. And it's more more of a giving over than a manufacturing or a constructing. You know? Because life already is these moments. That's its nature. The, 
that it, it, it's our self-concern that obscures them, that makes them invisible. And we've all had them. And this is, um, in a way, each of us has our own sutras. Each of us has the story of our own moments. It has the teaching of them. Somewhere in our being. So we sit, we practice to be true to those moments. And we practice to enable, to allow those moments. So those are my three stories. And um, I hope those stories will um, make you curious about your own stories. I remember once hearing this exchange between a medical doctor, a Western doctor, and a Native American um, shaman, healer. And the Native American shaman healer said, why don't you tell me some of your healing stories and I'll tell you some of my healing stories. <laughs> and of course the medical doctor looked totally perplexed. <laughs> what the heck's a healing story? Well, I hope those stories give you some, uh, some notions as to what a healing story may be. Thank you.